everybody. Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Excited to announce today's guest, Ryan Holiday, who is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book amongst nine that he's written in total. His current book is called Stillness is the Key, and Ryan's joining us today from Austin, Texas. Ryan, welcome to On Leadership. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Nine books. That's insane. So are you a literature major? How did you start? And, and tell us a bit about your journey in terms of your professional career and your life as an author and speaker. Acquaint um, our audience to yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not a literature major. I'm actually a college dropout. But, but what I did when I was about 19 years old, I, I dropped out of college to be a research assistant for a great writer named Robert Greene, who wrote the 48 Laws of Power, the 33 Strategies of War. And so for many years, I sort of apprenticed as a writer. And so I, I came to understand uh, writing as, a, as both a, a craft and a business. And then I, I had a career in marketing for many years. And those things converged in 2011, 2012, when I, when I wrote my first book. I feel, Ryan, like we have rival sets because your, your book set is, is, is crushing mine. <laughs> What's going on back there? Are those ones yeah. that you've written and, or read or inspired? Talk about that. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I, uh, you can see a chunk of them directly behind me are, are just different translations of my books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the weird parts of publishing, as you know, is they send you the Korean edition and I the know. Bulgarian edition, yeah. and you don't want to throw it away, but you really don't have any room for it. So my house is o overfilling with books. But w one of the things that goes into writing a book is that you just read hundreds and hundreds yeah. of books. And right. so every book that I do, you know, fills my, my house to the brim. And so that's me trying to find some, some space for it. But, but it, you, you did ask an interesting question, and it's, it's, it's one that I, I, I had my eyes open to. So when people see a large set of books, they assume uh, that you've read all of them. Uh, there's this concept I love called an anti-library, which is, do you have books that you haven't read, that you know you haven't read, that are there for you in an emergency or when you need to know about something. And so the idea is, is some of these books are, are books I would like to read in the future or know that a situation may arise in which I need to turn to them and I, I sort of want to have them on hand. Well, my next step is to ship you Franklin Covey's entire library of 40 books so you have all those I'll on hand it. in an emergency, okay? <laughs> please, please. I would, I would love that. Including some of my own. Okay, Ryan, we brought you on today because of your current book, Stillness is the Key. I mentioned number one New York Times bestselling um, book. That, people say that kind of casually. That's not a casual statement. That is a phenomenal accomplishment. How many of your books have been bestsellers and what did you do when your book debuted at one? Hope you celebrate. You no, know, you know it's it's an interesting thing. So uh, I, most of my books have hit bestseller lists of various kinds. There was this very conspicuous lack of ever having hit the New York Times list. I'd, I'd been number one on the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I'd sold literally millions of copies of the books, and for some reason, it had never hit uh, New York Times. So when I went into the launch on this, sort of trying to practice what I preach, and uh, part part of which is focusing on the part of the process that you control, right. not the outcomes, which are in, in some respects up, up to other people. Right. I was really prepared for it not to hit the list at all. I wanted to focus on, you know, did I write the best book possible? 
Did I do all the marketing uh, required? Did I reach everyone that I could reach with it? So I was much more focused on what are my first week sales, which were the the best uh, of any of my launches to date. And so when the New York Times thing came in, having been snubbed, you know, eight consecutive times, it was it was oddly kind of anticlimactic, and and there's a rule I practice that sort of uh, connects to uh, the concept in stillness, which is my rule is I don't use my phone for the first one hour that I'm awake. I want to have that time to be focused, to be still, to do creative work that I need to do for the day, uh, and and I just don't want to wake up and be jerked around by you know, whatever came in while I was sleeping. And so uh, I was on the road doing, uh, I was on the road for book tour. And so I was having to use my phone as an alarm clock, which I, I don't like to do. But I woke up that morning and I could see a bunch of texts from my <laughs> book agent and my publisher, uh, you know, somewhat figuring it was either really good or really bad news pertaining to the list, knowing that it, it was it was coming out that day. The the uh, sort of self-discipline it required for me to put the phone down, not check the text messages, do my morning journaling, go for the swim that I wanted to do, do the writing I had to do before I came uh, around to check it was, you know, very difficult. And and then in, in some ways, I think contributed to, you know, kind of being able to shrug off the success and and, and get back to work. I can't fathom. I would have had a carpal tunnel from refreshing the New York Times site the entire morning. I would have been texting my publisher, right? Hey, let's get into the book. It's a great story. You're going to give us some tips today on why stillness is the key. In fact, in my family now, we have a new phrase. I'll say to my nine-year-old Thatcher, Thatcher, what's the key? He'll say stillness. It's like a, it's like a, it's a mantra now at our dinner table. And my five-year-old Wentworth, I'll say. Whitworth, what's the key? Stillness. He has no idea what I'm talking about, but it's like a family mantra. Uh, sure. Why did you write this book? I, I wrote the book because th- when I was thinking back, I, I've got two young kids, and when I was when I think back at the sort of happiest moments of my life, but then also the moments where I did my the best work of my life, they seem to have one thing in common, and, and that thing is some kind of stillness, some sort of focus, some uh, absence of distraction, some real presence. Um, and, and so my, my thinking was, if that's so important, and if that is what's making me able to do what it is that I do, why am I content to have these moments happen accidentally? Why, why am I content for them you know, to, to sort of be so rare? And so the, the book was a decision to sort of deliberately look at this idea of stillness um, and, 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 and what goes into it and, and what allows it to happen. And, and what I found in that research is, is just how universal an idea is. It's very, it's very rare that you find a philosophical concept that, you know, Socrates and Jesus and Confucius and Buddha and, you know, Marcus Aurelius are in agreement on that. That is extraordinarily rare, but stillness is one of the, one of those things that appears in, Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam, Judaism, you know, all the religions, all the philosophical schools, the point of wisdom is kind of to slow things down, to get to what really matters, to have sort of a kind of inner peace, even when the world might be tearing itself to pieces. If I had written a book, it would have been called Stillness is Absent. 
But yes, I, I, me I, too. But I know, but I've bought, I bought your book and invited you on because who doesn't need this in their life? And you could have written a philosophical tome. You actually wrote a, a philosophical tome that actually has a lot of practical value in it because you know, like you and I, we have very similar roles. We're authors, we're speakers, we're traveling, we're raising a family, and there's no stillness in my life. Yeah. None. Look, th there's a quote from Blaise Pascal that I opened the book with. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. But what's so incredible about that is, you know, he said that in the 1500s. And so that's before computers, before, you know, cheap airfare, before, you know, really any mechanization of any kind. And, and, and even then human beings were struggling with it. So it's, it's both this timeless problem, but it's, and I think it's a timeless problem, particularly for ambitious, talented people. And then technology comes along on top of that and compounds it. And so we are, we are always struggling with stillness. We have always been struggling with stillness, um, but it is in, in some ways more, more urgent than ever. And I, I don't think there's anyone that would have described me or, or maybe even still would describe me as if you had to give one word to describe Ryan Holiday, I don't think you're going to go with stillness. And that's kind of precisely how I, why I wrote the book and why I write all my books. I'm not trying to write from a perspective of, I have figured this out, yeah. uh, be like me. I'm, tr I'm trying to write from a perspective of what have much smarter people figured out a long time ago and how can we integrate more of that wisdom in, into our modern lives? In fact, Ryan, in many ways, you argue that it's a leadership competency. It's not a word you use per se, but the reflection, the quiet, uh, the stillness that's required for leaders in their workplace in order to make better decisions is, uh, is it's prophetic. In fact, you share, I think, a fascinating overview of John F. Kennedy's presidential administration when he was dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm actually from Orlando in the 70s, so it, it, it followed that, born in 68, I think very similar sure. time, just after that. Take a yep. few minutes and kind of recreate the non-political view of the Cuban Missile Crisis and share some details. I found it a fascinating read. And then the role that stillness played in John F. Kennedy's decision-making around how to resolve that potentially, you know, nightmarish conclusion. Yeah, so imagine Kennedy goes to sleep one night in October in 1962, and when he wakes up, the CIA informs him that there are now nuclear missile sites on the island of Cuba. These are missiles that can strike Washington, D.C., New York City, the Panama Canal, basically almost anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, and, and large chunks of the Southern Hemisphere, too. And so the, the, essentially, in an instant, the entire global balance of power has changed. Um, and this is compounded by the fact that Kennedy had just been sort of humiliated with the Bay of Pigs. Uh, he's coming up on an election year. Um, he's, uh, you know, he, he's, he's had trouble negotiating with Khrushchev previously. And so when, when his military advisors come to him and say, look, there is no time to delay. We need to essentially bomb Cuba off the face of the earth. Uh, we, we may have to bomb Russia. Like, nuclear war is here. Are you ready? Um, there was an immense amount of pressure on Kennedy to just sort of go along, to accept that first impression, to, to get caught up in the sort of tit for tat of it. And, and it's a testament to his leadership. And, and I think this idea of stillness that he was able to, to slow down and, and really think through it. I mean, we, we call that that period now, we call that the 13 days. That's the title of, of Robert F. Kennedy's book about it. Um, 
And and I mean, it's even just amazing that 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 it transpired over 13 days, right? Like we we would give a president today like 13 minutes. Um, but what Kennedy was able to do is realize that um, yes, this was a an unprecedented. Uh, you know, move of aggression. This was wildly dangerous. It absolutely had to be dealt with. But if he wasn't very careful and very deliberate about each action that he took, it would result in a in a reaction or a counteraction that that could potentially destroy the world as we know it. And one of Kennedy's lines, he says, "I want to use time as a tool and not as a couch." And so what he meant is like, I'm not going to take 13 days to do the thing I already know I need to do. He's saying. How can I really think about this? How can I not just accept first impressions and get really to the truth of what's happening? And, and what, he, what he realizes is that the Russians have sort of made an enormous gamble here. It wasn't as well thought out as maybe it seemed. And that to dive into attacking them would actually create a pretext for nuclear war uh, that would leave both parties worse off. He says something like, look, I'm, he says to his generals, like, I'm worried that if you're wrong, no one will be around to say, I told you so. And so his decision to blockade Cuba, to open diplomatic channels, to give the Russians essentially a chance to come to their senses and realize that they completely misread the United States and, and completely misread Kennedy, um, and, and, then, and then to quietly negotiate the removal of some missiles from, from Turkey, which were not really worth anything, Kennedy is able to back the world back from this, you know, sort of precipice that it very nearly went down. And and I think your point about stillness being a leadership strategy is, is essentially the argument in the book, which is if a leader is not doing that, if the leader is not the one willing to slow things down, to get to the truth of it, to do the right thing, to let cooler heads prevail, then the company or the business or the country has no chance of doing it. The janitor can't insist on that, right? The customer can't insist on that. Um, ultimately, this is something that has to trickle down from the top. Ryan, well said, well recreated. And I love this story in the book. In fact, I'm gonna quote for a moment something that you lifted uh, with permission out of the Saturday Review of Literature from B.H. Liddell Hart, one of the numerous philosophers or writers you quote that I'm not familiar with. But this is a profound passage. I think like every leader should buy your book and then photocopy, sorry, pages 14 and 15 and tape them to their cubicle. Here's what it says in reference to the, you know, the Kennedy's approach to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Keep strong, if possible. In any case, keep cool have unlimited patience, never corner an opponent, and always assist him to save face. Put yourself in his shoes so as to see things through his eyes. Avoid self-righteousness like the devil. Nothing is so self-blinding. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of awkward, but it's so prophetic, is it not, for politicians, for leaders, for parents, for friendships, for conflicts with your neighbor, your spouse? Riff on that a bit. Well, what's so incredible about that quote is he's actually not describing Kennedy and the missile crisis. He is describing yeah, right. his I ideal attitude for a leader in the nuclear age, which, and this goes to the point of your show and, and, and the point of the business that you and I are both in, that was a book that Kennedy had read right. during the election and the Saturday Evening Journal or whatever had asked both him and Nixon, the two candidates, 
if they were willing to write a book review of the book for, for their newspaper. Nixon said he was too busy and didn't do it. Kennedy took the time, read the book, wrote the review, specifically quoted that passage. And then as it happened, when he became president and he faced you know, a situation with stakes that very few human beings have ever fully had to face, we can imagine that that passage comes pinging back into his mind and he's able to live it. And so, you know, when we're talking about stillness, we're not saying that the leader has to go off to, to 30 day meditation retreats or that the, you know, the leader should always be emptying their mind and not thinking things. When we're talking about stillness, we're talking about taking the time from your busy life to sit down and read or to have a conversation with a wise person or to, to, set down priorities. I mean, the amount of leaders that I talk to that go, oh, I just don't have time to read. You know, you go, okay, but if you're not reading, who is doing the reading in your organization, right? And so, you know, that, that Kennedy, in the midst of a presidential campaign, takes the time to read this book. And then that book, you know, gives him the perspective that he then uses in the missile crisis is, I think, you know, as compelling a case for the power of reading for busy people and for leaders as, as one can probably find. Ryan, I've heard Franklin Covey's uh, CEO and chairman, Bob Whitman, say thinking is a legitimate business activity, right? Sometimes I wish Bob would move faster on things, but this is a man who's very deliberate, very contemplative, not paralyzed at all. I tend to have the more impetuous, you know, bias to sure. action, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good point. You speak about, in the book, this concept of, of your information diet, and if people are yeah. like me, I have a little bit of a compunction to just consume vast amounts of information. I feel like, you know, after, you know, a, a, a kid from the 80s, if I'm not watching CNN on constant feed, I'm sort of neglecting my patriotic sure. duty to know what's going right. on. What advice would you give leaders and people that are trying to bring stillness into their life to manage their, as you call it, information diet more deliberately? Yeah, I, look, not all information is created equal. And so when I talk to people who say, look, I don't have time to read or I'm too busy or I don't have time to think or I don't have any stillness, I go, well, let's look at where you're spending your time. And okay, you've watched a couple hours of news today. You've read, you know, 15 or 20 articles on your phone. You, you check Twitter 15 times, you check Facebook 15 times, and you spent four hours in your inbox, right? Your email inbox. Of course, you don't have time to sit and and do that legitimate business activity you were talking about, which is thinking. Of course, you don't have time to read. Of course, you don't have time to to you know um, to, to to go for a walk or to exercise or do you know basically anything but but just mainline this information. And then and then when we look at that information at that information diet and we go, okay, how often are you actually making decisions on this information? Is it affecting? Uh, your life in any way, the answer is, is often alarming. So, so like, look, if you don't know who you're going to vote for for president and you're watching the debates, great. If you already know who you're going to vote for, you're watching the worst form of entertainment, which is a presidential debate, right? So um, pe people spend a lot of time feeling like being up on things is participating, is making a difference. And really, it's actually taking time away from the area where they can make the most difference, which is the people and the organization that they're responsible for. So yeah, I, I, I myself keep a very strict news diet. I don't watch any television news. 
I try to read the news from trusted publications, but I try to do it not in real time. I want issues to sort themselves out a little bit before I dive in too much. And then the bulk of the reading I do, I want to do in books, not just because I'm, I'm biased as an author, but you know, if you want to understand this jockeying between the United States and China, like read the history of the Peloponnesian War, which is about, you know, the jockeying of power between Sparta and Athens. Or if you want to understand what's going on between, you know, the U.S. and Iran, like, you know, we've been messing around in the Middle East for hundreds of years. Like, wh why don't you start there? Don't don't just focus on the headlines. Try to get to the core of what's happening just in the same way that, you know, you don't you don't get a good diet eating, you know, snacks all day. You, you've got to cook yourself a healthy meal. Was that for me or for the president? <laughs> because I mean, that's just great it's, advice. It's 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 very alarming. Whatever you know, whatever you are politically, yeah. the president should not be watching Fox and Friends. That's right. Not because Fox and Friends is is biased necessarily, but because Fox and Friends is it themselves looking at the president to find out what's happening. The president should be looking at, you know, history, should be studying the the reports that his intelligence agencies are giving him, him or her. You know, like the, we've just we've just I, I've I've been lucky enough to 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 spend some time with different sports teams over the years because of my books, and it's amazing. You walk in and you know they're watching Sports Center too, and you're like, "This is crazy!" Like uh, I thought this was for fans, but that's where they're getting their information as well. Ryan, you fair you share a fairly funny anecdote in the beginning around Fred Rogers and Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, and I was actually raised on that as a child. Uh, but I don't remember the, the story. I don't remember the concept from the show that you shared. Recreate that for us in the, the, the connection between stillness. Yeah, I mean, it sort of proves the point uh, how often we sort of overlook things. But if you notice the, the first shot that you see in the introduction to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is there's a flashing yellow traffic signal. And almost everything that Fred Rogers did was very deliberate, and, and we can assume this was too. What he's saying is sort of slow down. He, he's saying be cautious. He's saying, you know, don't get carried away. Uh, be safe. And 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 what I think so amazing, having having you know a three-year-old and a seven-month-old right now, uh, when you watch you know sort of today's entertainment for kids, whether it's you know stuff on YouTube or stuff on Netflix, and and then you watch. Uh, you know, an episode of Mr. Rogers, the energy levels are just like profoundly different. Um, you know, a, a show on Nickelodeon is almost like designed to make your kid Here like a hyped up spaz. Right. Right. And Fred Rogers was there with this incredibly slow, calming energy and, and just how much better I think the world would be if we picked up on that. Let's get tactical. You talk about the power of sort of managing your stuff, and I love this quote from the book. This was profound. We get so used to a certain level of convenience and luxury that it becomes almost inconceivable that we used to live without it. As wealth grows, so does our sense of normal. Expand on that. <coughs> Well, I, you know, it's interesting here now that we're starting a new decade. I, I would urge people to think back to where they were in 2010 and what they thought was normal, what they were able to get by on, you know, what they thought was a lot of money, you know, what they thought was luxury, and then just, just track how over even just 10 years 
this has inflated, both because of technology, both hopefully because of your own success, both because of where, where we were economically as a, as a planet in 2010 was very different than where we are now. Well, one thing I always sort of remind myself of, it's, it's humbling. I remember when I dropped out of college, um, my, the, the job that I got was I was making $30,000 a year. And I remember actually saying to, to my then girlfriend, now wife, um, I can't believe I'm going to make $30,000. What am I going to do with all this money? Um, and so, so it, how quickly though, what seemed like a lot to us or seemed like plenty to us, whether we're talking about money or time or social media followers or, or work opportunities, we, we almost immediately sort of reintegrate, normalize, and that becomes the new standard. And, and what this does uh, in, in some respects, it, it propels us forward, but it also makes us very ungrateful it also makes us very risk averse, and it and it, it also means that we're we're never stopping, we're never slowing down. We have no idea of what like enough is uh, as far as a baseline goes, because we're always we're always moving that goalpost. Ryan, speak to this uh, concept of journaling. We hear so much about it, right? Every celebrity's got a journal out there now, and Target, yeah. Walmart, and Amazon are full. <laughs> of them. You take a little bit, a little more deliberate approach. I've never been a journaler. I've never had a diary. I'm quite steeped on how many people use it and its value. Uh, share some of your thoughts on the connection between the power of journaling and being more still and collected and deliberate in your life. Journaling is kind of one of those things like meditation where we know almost every successful person on the planet does it and right. then we can't bring ourselves well to do said. it. Uh, uh, but I, and I was the same way for many years. I, I think we, we think about it as this thing we'd like to have done, but then we don't do it right. Like, uh, how many of us wish we had, uh, we could look back at what we were thinking when we were in college or when we were in our twenties or when we were, you know, even a, a, as a kid. Right. And, 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 and then we go, Oh, that would be nice to have, but I, I'm not going to start it now. Right. And so I think with journaling, it's one of these things that you realize, it's the process of doing it where you get most of the value. And then the byproduct is having done it long enough, you have this record of who you were and what you thought. For me, journaling is a thing that I try to do in the morning before I'm on email, before I'm checking anything. I just want to have some quiet time with my thoughts. I, I, I'm not performing for history. There's no rules to it. It's just I'm going to sit there with my thoughts. And, and there's a great line I have in the book from Anne Frank where she says, you know, paper is more patient than people. Mm -hmm. One really easy thing you can do to start with journaling is just like journal when you're upset. What are you angry about? Why are you angry? Who are you angry at? And just work that out on the page. And then sometimes you'll find, okay, I'm good now. I don't even need to talk to this person. Like you can kind of dissipate on the page emotions, fears, worries, troubles, you know, even, even, you know, pride or, or gratitude, you can get it down on the page. And the process of having done that is just immensely rewarding. Ryan, in our final few minutes here, uh, as a credible and congruent, I'm guessing, author and practitioner, what are some of the things that you have found to be most valuable that our listeners and viewers could integrate into their lives as you make stillness a you know integral part of your own career as a parent, as a friend, as a leader? What are some tips you could give me to be yeah. more still? 
I'll give you a, a, a very easy one that might seem somewhat counterintuitive, but but I think one of the best ways you can have more stillness, more thinking, more reflection in your life, more clarity is is to take a walk every day. Uh, this morning I woke up, I took my two sons for a three mile walk. We watched the sun come up. We didn't have any devices. There was no purpose to this. We weren't exercising. We were outside walking, and almost inevitably, when I go for these walks each day, not only is it you know great family time, not only is it good exercise, but I come back with ideas or I come back with solutions to problems I have had. And and I think when you when you look at history, you find that most of the great philosophers, most of the great teachers, most of the great leaders, most of the great composers and artists were 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 taking. Uh, long walks every single day. Uh, I think it was Nietzsche who said, like, only ideas had while walking are of any worth. And so walking would be a, a huge one that I would intuitive one um, would be would be a hobby. Uh, Winston Churchill wrote a book called Painting as a Pastime. And he said, you know, the most important thing you can do as a powerful public person is to have a hobby, something that gives you rest and relaxation outside of your work. And I think when you look at, you know, Wall Street CEOs, when you look at artists, when you look at entrepreneurs, most of them have a, a hobby. They are not all work. And the, the hobby could be kiteboarding. It could be long distance cycling. It could be gardening, could be stamp collecting. Um, but it should be something that gets you away from your desk and allows you to sort of turn your mind off in one sense, but also turn it on in a different sense. And thus, the, the sort of in, in the midst of this process, not only are you getting smarter and better and, and having more balanced, but, but oftentimes you will come up with insights or have clarity about work or about people problems inside your organization that had you been wholly focused on, you actually would not have had. I could use more of you in my life. I wish we were neighbors. <laughs> I would be a better dad, a better leader, a better father, a better friend. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Ryan, nine books down, what's next for you? I mean, I, I always try. One of my rules is by the time my, a book comes out, I want to be working on the next one. And part of this is just to insulate me um, in, in terms of creatively from success or failure. I don't want the 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 success of a book to you know distract me i want to always be working so you know in the next two weeks i've got to turn in a manuscript for for my next book so i'm i'm always writing always working and and, and in the process I'm, I'm always trying to get a little bit better hey ryan i hope to read it and if it's uh within the, our realm love to have you back and talk about your next book as well that would be amazing i'd be honored ryan thanks for joining us for on leadership appreciate it thanks for having me Hey, and thanks for joining us as well. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. Subscribe. Your family, your friends, your colleagues, rate it, rank it, review it on all your favorite podcast channels. On Leadership is now both the fastest growing and largest consumed podcast weekly dedicated to leadership. We're honored for you uh, joining us today. We'll see you back next week for a new interview with Franklin Covey's On Leadership.